Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, tensions rise between North and South Korea. North Korea's behavior has been provocative, belligerent. And the fallout from a row over a TV drama about bullying on the front line. Accused portrayed bullying that's got no place in fact or fiction in the 21st century. Gross insensitivity while the army's conducting difficult and dangerous operations in Afghanistan. A crackdown on domestic violence could see suspects banned from their homes for up to four weeks, even if there's not enough evidence to charge them. Charities are welcoming moves to give police and the courts more powers to deal with alleged abusers. The body of the 100th member of the British Armed Forces to die this year after being deployed to Afghanistan has been repatriated. Guardsman Christopher Davis from St Helens died after being shot in an ambush in Hamman province. Police in London are defending their decision to keep hundreds of protesters penned in during yesterday's demonstration against tuition fee rises, but the Metropolitan Force has admitted it badly handled an earlier demo two weeks ago. Royal Marines have destroyed a boat being used by pirates off the coast of Somalia. The Marines based on board HMS Montrose fired machine guns at the vessel as they hovered above in a Lynx helicopter. And the government's to spend another £8 billion on the rail network in the next decade. There'll be more than 2,000 new train carriages, but fares will rise to help pay for it. The simmering dispute between North and South Korea has gone on now for 60 years, but it exploded again this week when the North fired dozens of shells at a populated island near the border between the two nations. Two civilians and two South Korean Marines are thought to have died, and today South Korea's Defence Minister has resigned after criticism over the response to the attack. South Korea's President Lee Myung-bak has ordered his army to retaliate with missile strikes against North Korea if there are further provocations. A hundred statements or meetings wouldn't work. I think it's a duty of the army to respond with action. In particular, we can never tolerate unconditional attacks against civilians. Authorities in Pyongyang say the South fired first, North Korea State TV giving this warning to Seoul. Should the South Korean puppet group dare intrude into the territorial waters of the DPRK, even 0.0.1 millimetre, the revolutionary armed forces of the DPRK will unhesitatingly continue taking merciless military counteractions against it. It's one of the most serious attacks in decades-long rivalry between North and South Korea, and it's being condemned around the world. Russia has warned of a colossal danger, while at the White House, spokesman Mark Toner says it's essential to calm the situation. North Korea's behaviour has been uh, very, very bad, uh, provocative, uh, belligerent, and again, we're not going to get into buy into this cycle of rewarding that kind of behaviour. But why are tensions escalating now at a time of great political upheaval in the notoriously secretive North? Professor Paul Rogers is from the Department of Peace Studies at Bradford University. Professor Rogers, thanks for your time today. These latest developments come after eight months of tension following the sinking of a South Korean warship. But why now do you think is this happening? I think there are two aspects to this. Wherever you've had major problems between North and South Korea, 
over the last few decades, they've tended to be at sea, partly because the land boundary includes a very well-marked demilitarized zone, whereas it's much more open at sea. As to why it should happen now, well, we had the sinking of the Tiananmen uh, some way to the west of the current incident back in March, and it seems to be part of a process of internal North Korean politics. You have the potential for a leadership crisis. Uh, the current president is certainly ailing. He wants one son uh, to continue to take over from him. There seem to be a lot of internal dissensions, often involving senior military. And to some extent, it may well be that this very nasty incident was almost to divert attention from what was going on in, internally, but also to remind the world that they have to deal with North Korea. And of course, in any negotiations, North Korea wants to get as much economic advantage as it can. This doesn't make it any easier, and it means we are in a tense situation. And as you were reporting, the South Koreans are basically saying they are going to have to be more robust in any future response. And that means there is a risk of crisis escalation. And do you think any of this actually has anything to do with North Korea revealing a few days ago that it has a new uranium enrichment facility? I would think quite probably because uh, the people who saw that included the, the former head of the Los Alamos National Laboratory in the United States, a hugely experienced nuclear scientist. And what he saw was basically the reconstitution of an old plant, the stripping out of the old equipment, and the putting in of what he thought was really a pretty modern uranium enrichment facility, not on a huge scale, but certainly significant. So in a sense, North Korea seems to be showing in two different ways that it is there, that it has issues to be wrestled with, and probably it wants to improve its bargaining position. But I think many analysts do believe it is also a matter of internal power play and politics actually within this very secretive regime. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here in the studio. Uh, Christopher, hi, good to see you. Um, what do you think is going on here? Do you know, I agree with everything Paul said, but let's put it another way. Uh, why did the South Koreans have that exercise in the first place? It's just down the road or just a couple of miles away from a, a disputed boundary between North Korea and South Korea. It was a damn stupid thing to have done. And why did they no do it, though? It. I mean, it, the relations were actually improving slightly between the two countries, well, I'm not sure they? about I'm not sure about that, but I mean, because it, since, since uh, 2009, they broke off the negotiations about the nuclear things. But you imagine it being run the other way. Just supposing the North Koreans had decided to do a live-firing exercise couple of miles from a disputed boundary, do you think the South Koreans would have been upset about it? Of course they would. But you've got, you got to agree to some... I mean, it was an overreaction, wasn't it, by North Korea? It can't well, be acceptable. Well, they They've been warning them for about three weeks, do not do this, do not have this live-firing exercise. The South Koreans have said, we're going to have an exercise. North Koreans said, don't do that. It would be provocative. I think sometimes we have to step back and say, well, you know, there are two sides to this, and the North Koreans took advantage of it, and that's the other side of it. Yes, they did take advantage of it, and it was a time when the Americans just two days beforehand and said, I don't see how we can get back to talks while the, the North Koreans uh, are, are developing even more so and won't talk about their nuclear thing. And I don't know what, uh, what Paul thinks. You've got to remember the guy you were talking about, you know, the, who went to have a look at this laboratory or look at this enrichment program, he was invited by the North Koreans. He Indeed. didn't say, please, can I come? Mm. Uh, uh, Professor Rogers, how, how do you see this situation developing? Oh, I would agree very much with Chris, and I think it, it, it's very good to have that sort of corrective to, to the common mood. It goes back to the point I made at the start. You have a pretty clear um, delineation between North and South Korea on land. I've been to the southern part of the demilitarized zone. It is utterly clear where the border lies. It is not clear at sea. 
And the point is that you happen to have a series, I think it's five populated offshore islands, which are very close to the North Korean coast, quite a long way, in some cases a couple of hundred miles away from the nearest South Korean territory, yet are actually controlled by the South Koreans. And it's the border between the two, this very indistinct maritime boundary, that is the really tricky thing. I have to agree there was provocation on the South Korean side. One of the problems at the moment is, though, while one can really condemn the North Koreans, particularly for the killing of civilians, we now have a major American naval um, operation going into the area based on the carrier battle group USS George Washington is the lead ship. And the South Koreans have announced today that they're going to increase the militarization of the islands. All right. We'll have to are wa- getting tense, I'm afraid. We will have to watch this situation. Professor P- Paul Rogers, thank you very much for your time. Sit rep with Still to come, the battle to save RAF bases threatened by the Defence Review as the new head of the armed forces defends budget cuts. A plan is not a plan if it doesn't take into account the resources available. It's a wish list. On the face of it, the weekend's NATO summit was a big success. Member states made progress on a new mission statement for the alliance, a missile defence system to cover Europe and greater cooperation with Russia. But on Afghanistan, some questions remain. The summit agreed responsibility for security in the country will be handed to Afghan forces by 2014. David Cameron has set a firm deadline for British combat troops to leave the following year. But what happens if conditions aren't right by then? Our reporter James Hurst was at the summit in Lisbon. The NATO summit could be compared to an uninspiring American football match, a game of four quarters and no surprise in the results. First up, a new strategic concept for NATO, a 10-year plan for what the alliance is about. Secretary-General Anders Rasmussen said it was rooted in the lessons of Afghanistan. NATO will enhance its role in counterinsurgency operations and in stabilisation and reconstruction missions. But it's also rooted in the economic reality of the 21st century, with a restructure to make NATO leaner. 4,000 jobs going, almost a third. Over dinner on the first night, another deal for NATO's future. A missile shield to defend Europe, America's missile defence project extended to become part of the alliance. But the deal that got all the attention was number three, a framework and target date to end combat operations in Afghanistan. A transition to Afghan responsibility that begins... In 2011, with Afghan forces taking the lead for security across Afghanistan by 2014. President Barack Obama, like NATO, insisted the 2014 date was conditions-based, not calendar-driven, so could change if Afghan forces weren't ready to take control in time. Yet David Cameron stuck to 2015 being an absolute deadline for Britain. He insisted it didn't amount to a difference with NATO or the US. There also appeared to be another potential issue with the deal, one that I put to David Cameron. Are there any commitments in place to ensure that other NATO nations will remain with the combat mission right to the end and not just leave Britain and America to wash up in the most difficult places? I think it is important that those countries that are involved in easier parts of the country don't just transition, as it were, over and out, leaving countries like Britain in some of the more uh, testing parts of the country. I discussed that in my contributions to the uh, ISAF uh, summit here, uh, and President Obama, I know, shares those views. We discussed it. There's been no date set for when British troop numbers might start reducing, and the Defence Secretary indicated the transition process could even 
see British troops moving elsewhere in Afghanistan. As the security situation improves, we will change the number of forces. In some cases that will mean drawdown, in other cases that will mean repositioning our troops in different parts of Afghanistan. So we could move out of Helmand as part of this deal? Well, I would think it would be unlikely that we would move out of Helmand, but we will want to do uh, what is best for the situation in Afghanistan and for the alliance. The final deal was with Russia for greater cooperation between the old enemies, working on training and supply routes for Afghanistan and also coordinating missile defence shields, an issue that saw US-Russia relations hit a major low just a couple of years ago. It illustrates how all four deals are interconnected and interdependent. And American politicians could stall progress immediately because they're threatening to block the new START nuclear reduction treaty. That would upset Russia. These deals could be fragile. It's delivering them that's the real hard work. James Hurst reporting. Well, earlier I spoke to the BBC's diplomatic correspondent, Jonathan Marcus. I started by asking him how NATO countries can talk about withdrawal dates without encouraging the Taliban to hang on until they leave. Well, in terms of NATO declarations, they sit together because uh, clearly on the one hand, uh, NATO has said that it's got this target of uh, a full handover of lead security responsibility to the Afghans by the end of 2014. Uh, But on the other hand, NATO has also uh, signed this long-term agreement uh, with the Afghan government, which basically says uh, NATO will be sticking around in a whole variety of supporting capacities uh, for the indefinite future. Uh, The difficulty is, of course, that what NATO is trying to do politically is send different messages to different people. It's trying to reassure the Afghan government on the one hand. It's trying to tell the uh, insurgents and the Taliban that uh, uh, there's no necessary end to NATO's involvement, that their their interests will continue. And of course, back home to the public opinion in many NATO countries where the uh, mission is deeply unpopular, uh, they're trying to tell people, not least in the United States, that there is an end in sight. There is actually an exit strategy. And I think the problem is that uh, whilst the declarations may be clear, quite what mixture of those messages are received in different places is quite another thing. David Cameron has set a firm deadline for combat troop withdrawal 2015. Uh, What do you think will happen if the US actually asks Britain to stay on and help beyond that date? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, again, that's uh, very much uh, an unknown uh, several years hence. Uh, I mean, it might be that uh, uh, special forces uh, or other specialised activities continue. Uh, Who knows? But uh, the Prime Minister has given a a very clear uh, deadline to the British public and to Parliament. Uh, There's no reason to believe at the moment that he would do anything other than, uh, than, than stick to that. But again, I think you'll find that the British position also is conditions based. I mean, you know, you can't give a, a, a blanket uh, decision without being mindful of what's actually going on on the ground. Jonathan Marcus, the BBC's diplomatic correspondent. Uh, Christopher, we've had a report this week from the Pentagon which effectively says the Taliban's gaining strength because of NATO's exit strategy. How do you stop the Taliban reassur- reinsurgence beyond 2015? How can that be achieved? You don't, unless you can put in place a very effective and a very effectual um, army of Afghans. One of the weaknesses of that... Which which we we were told is starting to happen, that it's actually working. That's right, but if you want to get, let's say, a 125,000-strong army, the one thing that's missing at the moment is going to be missing in five years' time is a good officer corps. You can't run it without a good officer corps and a good NCO corps, and that's what's missing. It's the whole problem of Afghanistan. It's this higher education of whether they're officials or officers or whatever, and that is one of the weaknesses, and that is why the, 
the chances are that British trainers, not combat troops, but trainers who will have a combat role if necessary, will be in Afghanistan. I mean, people in MOD say to me, talk about a decade. We're going to be there for another 10 years easily. Because all the talk is really 2015. We think, as the public, we're out by 2015, don't we? Yeah, because yeah. combat troops are leaving, and then, and then what happens exactly? You know, David Cameron in, in the Commons this week said, yes, I, it's a firm commitment. A firm commitment. He was banging his fist down. It looked really good. Uh, firm commitment. We're going to be out by 2015. Incidentally, that happens to be an election year, so we're going to be out by 2015. Uh, the, uh, the President of the United States says we're going to start our people out by 2011. That is the election year 2012. So these are political reasons. But if I'm sitting there in my house, I say, oh, troops out. It's not troops out. It's combat troops out. We're going to be there for a very, very long time. Christopher Lee, thanks for now. This is SITREP on BFBS. A British soldier in Afghanistan is bullied, singled out for mistreatment so bad that, in the end, he takes his own life. It's a fiction, but one that's triggered a row between the head of the army and the BBC. General Sir Peter Wall asked the BBC to scrap Jimmy McGovern's accused, calling it deeply offensive and distasteful. Paul Osborne watched the film. In the drama, screened in the UK earlier this week, a Lance Corporal, played by Mackenzie Crook, encourages bullying believing it will turn his squad into killers. But one member of his squadron, targeted for relentless mistreatment, eventually takes his own life, and the Lance Corporal has to cover his tracks. Cowards like him get you killed. It's time to get our story sorted. I know what the story is. The story is you drove me to suicide. That's the story. What are you doing? I'm going. You're going nowhere. You go when I tell you to go. Senior military figures, though, are furious about the film, including General Sir Richard Dennett. Accused portrayed bullying that's got no place in fact or fiction in the 21st century. It portrayed a warped loyalty that's completely unrecognisable in the army today and as far as I'm concerned, BBC One stands indicted for gross insensitivity while the army's conducting difficult and dangerous operations in Afghanistan. Decent people in this country are quite properly appalled. What seems to have most annoyed them is that in the film, when a friend of the bullied soldier makes a formal complaint, his base commander refuses to act. And the bullying Lance Corporal then says that the mistreatment of individuals is one way the army builds a sense of camaraderie. Critics say that's an offensive misrepresentation of the true situation. The BBC says it's a work of fiction and it never meant to offend service personnel or their families. Jana Bennett heads BBC Television. This isn't in any way a, a docudrama or a documentary nor a campaigning piece. It was a fiction written about loyalty, guilt, the nature of being able or not able to kill. It should be whether it's a good piece of fiction or not. The writer of Accused, Jimmy McGovern, says he wanted to show the sanctity of life. He says he has the greatest respect for British soldiers. Paul Osborne reporting, well, the army says it does not tolerate bullying and insists there's a widely advertised procedure for complaints as well as a new section set up to deal with bullying and harassment. Uh, Christopher, you've written a few dramas in your time yourself. Uh, would you indict the BBC for gross insensitivity, as no. Richard Dannett put it? No, but if you're going to commission something by Jimmy McGovern, Jimmy McGovern doesn't write the arches, I tell you. He writes <laughs> issues, right? Uh, a lot of what he's talking about there is symbolism, and so when you get, you know, General Dannett and people like that saying this is disgraceful, it's because they understand the public 
see it as almost as a documentary. The public believe it. You've got to do, do the public really believe it? Do you, I mean, aren't we just oh, yeah. sort of underestimating the intelligence of the public? This is drama, after all, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but you see, television viewing. Every television viewing survey suggests that if you get an issue, issue drama, and you start in British television with Kathy Come Home, it's an issue dr- drama where there is a large sense of reality. Public say, lasting image. That's what we believe, and that's what's happened in this case. And it won't go away because there's always been. So the army were right, were they, to protest? Uh, the army were absolutely right to protest. I think they'd be they're right to protest because, from that point of view, I think they were dumb to protest because it only drew a lot of people who'd never seen the the program. It drew it to their attention. Including myself. Uh, Lynn Farr is from Daniel's Trust, set up five years ago to help service personnel who feel they're being bullied. Uh, Lynn, thanks for your time today. How many soldiers are getting in touch with you at the moment? Um, well, it varies. Um, there's only myself and my colleague Norma that actually uh, runs the outline, and sometimes we get very little call, few calls. But within the last, what, a week to ten days, uh, we've been helping nine soldiers. Um, can I point out also that it's not normally the soldiers that contact us. It's normally the parents or the siblings or the partners that's the first point of contact with us. And can you give us an, an example of the kind of things you're told about? Um, well, um, bullying, um, both verbally and physically, um, mainly the, young, the soldiers AWOL, and they're wanting to, find, to try and get the problem that they've got sorted out. They've gone AWOL through being bullied, and they need a channel to sort it out. And because we're um, impartial and non-judgmental, we seem to be able to make that work. Uh, Lynn, did you see the, docu- uh, the drama? I did. And what did you think of it? Um, well, I, I, it's really difficult to say because d- different people's perceptives of the drama, uh, uh, they've got different ideas about it. Um, and I think what's made it so raw is because... It's, been, it's because it's Afghanistan. If it had probably been, been Vietnam or World War II, then there probably wouldn't have been this outcry. The um, also, some members of our group um, and people that have contacted us have actually lost children by gunshot wounds to the head, and they, they found that they couldn't watch it. It was too raw for them. Mm. Um, the, uh, the MOD has said that they do have um, a new procedure for complaints. Uh, what do you think of the current systems in place to deal with bullying within the armed forces? Well, up until recently, there was, there, was, there was no direct line for the soldiers to complain about bullying and harassment. There is the complaints commissioner, but she cannot deal with the complaints. She only has the oversight of complaints to go in, and then they have to wade through tears. So that is a real long, drawn-out process. Um, Catrick, a few years ago, set up a bullying text helpline. Um, but that was... Um, that was an officer in charge of that so they had to speak to, they had to text to this officer and things like that so, so they were still going to a chain of command what we've done over the last couple of years is we, we were given a telephone line straight to the adjutant general's office so any complaints or bullying and sexual harassment that we got and that we couldn't sort out with the commanding officer we would then go to the uh, adjutant general's office and they would um, sort that out through that, this is how I think this discrimination and bullying helpline is coming to be in because it's run through the same office. All right, Lynn. Um, very briefly, if anyone wants to get in contact with you, what do they do? Um, they can email danielstrust at virgin.net. It's daniels.trust at virgin.net. Or they can call me on 01430 810 768. All right, Lynn Farr, thank you very much for your time.
The new chief of the defence staff has admitted the cuts announced by ministers last month mean Britain can no longer defend against every potential threat. But in his first speech since taking over the job, General Sir David Richards called the Strategic Defence and Security Review an acceptable risk. Now, a plan is not a plan if it doesn't take into account the resources available. It's a wish list, and no general worth his salt bases his plan on wishful thinking. The precise impact of the defence review is still being worked out, and in Scotland that's left questions over who will bear the brunt of the costs. A couple of weeks ago we spoke to Scotland's First Minister, Alex Salmond, about the campaign to save RAF Lossiemouth. But if that base were kept open, it could mean closure for RAF Lucas in Fife. Sir Ming Campbell is the Liberal Democrat MP for North East Fife, and he's on the line now. Thanks for your time today. Uh, Sir Ming, you said Lucas is vital to the defence of the UK. Why is that? Well, the first responsibility of any government is to defend its citizens. And RAF Lucas provides the air defence capability for the whole of the northern half of the United Kingdom. It's strategically based for this purpose. It's equipped for this purpose. It, up until now, it has been uh, the Tornado F3 aircraft, which has been deployed at Lucas. That's being replaced by the Eurofighter Typhoon. The first of these squadrons has actually arrived. It arrived in September, just a few days before the Battle of Britain Air Show, which is the only Battle of Britain Air Show left in Britain, which attracted 50,000 people. That's a measure, I think, of public support for Lucas. But, of course, the strategic um, argument in favour of Lucas is overwhelming. So that's a strategic argument you made. What if it closed in terms of the local community? Well, the closure of any base is bound to cause an impact on the local community. There are about 1,200 jobs civilian and service at RAF Lucas. Some detailed work is going on at the moment about what the economic impact would be if the base were to be closed and those 1,200 jobs were to be taken away. But it has to be pointed out that there's been a long tradition of the RAF presence here. It goes back to about 1918 in various forms. Uh, and the significance of it, of course, is that RAF personnel have, over many, many decades, become integrated members of the community. RAF Lucas is essentially a part of the local community. So it's not just economic impact we're talking about, we're talking about social impact as well. But ultimately the cuts do mean base cultures uh, set out in the Defence Review. Um, you're saying you'd rather people in Murray suffered, do, are no, you? I'm not saying that at all. I'm not making any comparison between uh, the bases in Murray uh, and RAF Lucas. My responsibility as the local MP is to make the case for Lucas. It's a positive case because what Lucas does is it provides air defence for the whole of the northern part of Britain. But if it were to come between Lottie Mouth and Lucas, um, you'd be happy to see Lottie Mouth go, would you? No, I'm not. In, I'm afraid I will not be drawn into that argument. I wish as many RAF bases as possible to remain in Scotland. But my purpose in conducting the campaign I'm engaged in now along with members of all political parties in Fife and of none, is to ensure that the strategic case for Lucas is properly put. I think that's an overwhelming case. Uh, and it's not just, of course, uh, a fighter squadron. Uh, it's a centre of defence excellence. We've got 71 TA Engineer Regiment, 58 Squadron of the Royal Air Force Regiment, University's Air Squadron, Regimental Headquarters of the RAF Cadets in Scotland and Royal Auxiliary Air Force, uh, unit and others. This is a centre of excellence which is fulfilling responsibilities across the spectrum of the defence of the realm and it should remain where it is.
Samin Campbell, you've made your case. Let's see what's happened. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Bye. Well, in the first public speech by the new Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir David Richards also touched on the decision to scrap the Ark Royal and leave Britain without a fully equipped carrier for up to 10 years. Whilst I consider it is an acceptable risk to be without carrier strike for the next decade, I do not and didn't during the SDSR debate think it prudent to assume a future that discounts ever requiring them again. Well, according to the former Naval Chief, Admiral Lord West, we may need the carriers sooner than we thought. In a letter to the Times today, he says the tensions between North and South Korea show the decision to do without jets for up to 10 years was short-sighted. Christopher, do you agree with him? Uh, Well, I think he's picked the wrong one. I mean, we we are not going to take part in what's going on between North and South Korea. But what he has got a very good point... You can't go for te- if you can go for ten years without a carrier-based uh, squadron. Why do you need it in ten years' time? That is really the crucial argument. Well, the chief of defence staff thinks it's a, it's a very sensible decision to make. It was a very good decision to make for a soldier. It was also <laughs> very, very true uh, that nobody bothers to say. For example, the guy I know has flown a hundred and forty uh, missions in Afghanistan, simply in in a, in a Harrier. And the Navy itself is not very good at selling it. I mean, for example, this time, or in spring of next year, one in three people serving in Afghanistan will be Navy. 30% of the British force in Afghanistan will be Navy. Mm. The Navy has failed to sell that. Instead of that, proud Admiral West, for all sorts of right reasons, I suppose, uh, he is talking about, oh, well, we couldn't do the Falklands again. You've got to, if you well, make an taking, argument, you've got to, we're back to this thing that we were talking about earlier Having the said that, every opportunity, perception. Every, every opportunity is being taken, isn't it, to put the case by the Navy, for the Navy, for the carriers, for uh, having jets on the carriers. Only in the letters columns of the time. <laughs> uh, Christopher, um, this week um, we've seen the Harriers take off uh, from Mark Royal for the last time, an emotional moment, and for yourself as well, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I was there in 81 when, when uh, Ark was uh, launched. I shall be there next Friday when she comes back to... Uh, comes back to Portsmouth. Yeah, it is sad, but I've asked you to take a photograph for, of you and the Ark Royal. We can put it on our website. That would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think it would, but uh, not with me in it, I'm afraid. No? Just, no, the, no? just the big ship, eh? Just the, just the big Ark. And there'll be another one. I'm sure there will. Christopher, good to have you. Thank you very much for your time today. We'll be back same time next week. Thanks for listening to SITREP. Bye-bye for now.